Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. We always uh, have a difficult um, task when we approach the Bible, and we have a difficult task, and uh, that uh, mainly because we just live in a completely different time and era. I've always thought, um, you know, as I read autobiographies or uh, biographies or even just things about that, that are written even not that long ago when you think about the different times in which we live in. You think 120 years ago, um, traveling any form of distance would be quite a, a difficult task. Um, even, you know, 100 years ago, even when the automobile had been invented, it wasn't necessarily a common thing where everyone had one. Um, you know, so traveling, you take for granted traveling, and you just think about uh, what that would have been like. Um, you know, I think about taking uh, kids in the car, and you think about going on a long distance or travel. I mean, even just uh, the fact that I'm being able to be here uh, from Australia, and you think about the difference it would have been to what that journey would have looked like uh, 300 years ago. Um, you know, going across on a boat and most likely not making it. Uh, it's hard to imagine. And even going back uh, to Bible times and just trying to think in what that era or that uh, time would have looked like. And as you read through, it's just quite a foreign concept for us. Um, it's hard really for us to imagine even something as common as we see in the Bible as enemies. Um, you know, may- maybe you have an enemy. Uh, an arch rival, uh, maybe not necessarily someone who you want dead, but uh, maybe someone who you've had some form of competition, either healthy or unhealthy in your lifetime, a sibling rivalry, or uh, someone who, who makes your job very difficult, and you need to be able to have, um, you know, overcome that. Um, I don't know if I have any enemies. They haven't told me if, if I do. Um, but uh, the closest I think of is, is groundhogs, you know, or squirrels in, in my garden. They, they seem really out to get me. But, but for us then to be able to think and place ourselves in a time and a situation where we truly had someone who was our enemy. Um, and, and David is exactly that man. He had real enemies, that real people who sought and wanted him did. Um, you know, men who would chase him down to be able to try and find him so that they might be able to kill him. And this is what marks a lot of his life. Um, and he's had enemies, not just uh, specific men, but uh, armies wanting to be able to attack him and, and the nation of Israel, the Philistines, the gladiator Goliath, um, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Syrians. Uh, and then you have even specific people of Saul who, who, who because of their, his jealousy, wanted to be able to chase him down. Um, although Saul was never specifically called an enemy from David, that, that's what role he played in his life, trying to chase him down, still wanted him dead. And, but now as we look in these, coming, these chapters that we've just read, we've, it's hit very close to home. Uh, is not only has had enemies in a different land far off, uh, Saul who wants to be able to chase him down, but now his own son from his own house wants the crown on his head. And he's willing to take the head off his body to be able to get the crown off his head. And 
And what an interesting thing, as, as David writes in Psalm 3, how many are my foes, that are many arising against me, and, and one of these people that is leading this rising of all the nation of Israel is his own son, Absalom. And David is, is someone who has lived his life on the battlefield or around the battlefield. He's, he didn't go out seeking these battles, but this is just something that was in this time and period and era. Um, he, he would not let anyone attack something that God had said he was called to protect. With Goliath, it wasn't necessarily Goliath did something wrong against David besides curse God, blaspheme God. And David was, was moved by said, we can't let this person bring down God's name. He, he's fought lions and bears to be able to protect sheep. And now as king, he's willing to protect those that are given to him as he is the prince, the, the shepherd of Israel. And we've seen this in the previous chapters that David had fled. And it wasn't a move of cowardice. It was a military wisdom as he heard that uh, Absalom was out and conspired against him. He said, arise, let us flee. Not so that we can run. I don't know what to do. Uh, I'm un- I-, I have no reason to be able to do this. This is the best chance we have. What he says is there will be no escape from Absalom. If we stay here in this city, we will be trapped. We need to go quickly. We need to leave. We need to flee quickly, lest he overtake us and bring us down to ruin and strike the city with the edge of the sword. This was not just a a running away from something that is hard and difficult. This is him facing his problem with the best way that he can, with the military knowledge that he has before him. And throughout this whole time, we've seen David not lay back and just take it as it comes waiting for something to happen, but he has been deliberately, as a king, ruling and protecting those in which God has trusted in him. And in this chapter, we again see David somewhat ruling as a king, but also as a father as well. So in the first two verses, we see uh, in chapter 18, Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will go out with you. So here he is, ready again not to be able to shrink back. He's standing there inspecting the troops. Now, we have no number of how many are with him at this time. Uh, We know that there's commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. So you must assume if he divides them by three, you have at least 3,000. Verse 7 says that 20,000 men died in this battle. But it's not about specific how many of them died. Is it just the total overall? How many were lost? Is it the total of just the Israelites that were lost? Now, just to put this in perspective, that's a large number, but just to put it in perspective, Ahithophel, when he gave his counsel in chapter 17 to Absalom, he said, just give me 12,000 men. 12,000 men is all I'll need. 
to be able to go down and strike uh, David. But he divides these men, however many they are, and he gives a third to Joab, a third to Abishai, and a third to Ittite the Gittite. Now, this is a great honor shown on Ittite the Gittite. We don't know how long this period of time is between chapter 15 and chapter 18. Um, we have no reference of that. I think it, it's quite a rapid progression in the story. We don't really have any time references um, as we did between Amon and Absalom, between this many years past, this many years past. Um, this could be a matter of weeks um, b- before David received news. Five days ago, they fled, they're out, they're running away. Um, it could be a month, maybe a year, but I, I think it's more likely to be uh, weeks or months. And just before he left um, Jerusalem, Ittai had just come to him. And Ittai was just yesterday, you came to me, he says. Shall I today make you wander about with us? Since I shall know, I go, I know not where. And so, in this period of time, there's something about Ittai the Gittite, whether it's what he said to him in chapter 15, or his ability to be able to command the the thousands that are given underneath him. This period of time is short, but yet he's put with Joab and Abishai, who have been with David all all the time of his reign. Joab has been his loyal commander throughout this time. And so he divides them up into these thirds. And, and then David, again, he's not willing to just shrink back and just say, let's, you know, you guys go take care of this. He is willing to even go into battle, that he's willing to go into battle with them. Now, we have no idea what a great warrior David actually would be. Uh, one of the reasons that I, I'm not a huge fan of picture books is if you were to picture David right now, I doubt you would have a, a good picture of David. Da- David was a mighty warrior. He, he, he is that famous song in, in the you know, turn of the millennia in B.C. and where Saul had killed his thousands, but David had killed his tens of thousands. And David is, is, is just from that moment continued to uh, kill and uh, you know, uh, show his prowess. Um, he, uh, he's a great warrior. I think he's a man with a, a, a large amount of muscle on him. Uh, he's able to rip a, a, a little lamb out of the mouth of a, a lion or a bear. Um, that is no simple task. An expert in war is how he's re- referred to. Um, and uh, he says, I'll go into battle. But the men turn around and say, it's not wise for you to go into battle. Um, uh, so... He, he's, he said um, uh, that he would go into battle with him. So his r- men explain why it's not a good idea for him to go into battle in verses 3 and 4. But the men said, you shall not go out. For if we flee, they will not care about us if half of us die. They will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, What have seemed best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate, while the, all the army marched out by the hundreds and the thousands. So here, 
David is going out. As they are marching out, David is inspecting. But the men basically just say, you are worth uh, 10,000 men. It is not worth you getting struck down into battle. But that's exactly what um, Ahithophel said. That he had the exact same thinking as he took, as he was saying, you give me 12,000 men, I'm gonna, and I'm going to strike King David. I will strike only the king down. This is who the battle is against. Absalom only wants King David. That's all he wants. He just wants the crown on his head. And so the men are explaining the same. You are, you're the reason why we're going out here. You are worth 10,000 men to be able to die. Now, just a quick reference here about uh, that he stood by the gate. This whole scene about David is set around this period of the gate. We'll see this as we continue through chapter 18 and 19. Just a reference point for us to be able to note that David is his relationship to the gate. Um, we'll come back and look at that, but just for you to be aware. And we need to understand what's happening here. As the men are marching out to be able to go to battle, this is a civil war. This is a civil war in the promised land. If we ever think that we're immune from any form of conflict in our lives or even specifically within the church, we are sorely mistaken. Now, we don't go to Presbytery with a sword or a bow attached to ourselves, uh, but we do understand that there is a reality that even in the, the people of God who bear the people of God's name, those covenant people, there is enmity inside there. That's what uh, the curse put. I will put enmity between you and the woman. There's conflict between the, the children of the serpent and the children of of promise. There's conflict. There's always going to be that conflict and tension. That's what Jesus said when he confronted the Pharisees, that you are of your father the devil. They were part of the coven community, but he says, you're not children of Abraham, children of the promise. You're the children of the devil. The conflict is always going to be uh, in reality, and we often think of it as conflict with uh, the people of promise, the children of promise, the covenant community, and those outside. But even in passages like this, we see that the conflict comes not from those outside and us within. Both of them come from, both of them bear that covenant uh, seal, that there's enmity between them. Church history teaches this, that the councils have, have met together to be able to fight out what it is to have true doctrine. The Reformation teaches us this, that even those who, who said that we are the church had incorrect doctrine. Even in, in, um, you know, in the last hundred or so years, liberalism and, and Christianity have, have had this battle about what is it that is true and right. But not even that, uh, Paul warns us about it in 2 Timothy he charges Timothy to be able to preach the word in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. And he says, For a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myth. He said that it's going to happen. People are going to hear and go find teachers that suit their own passions. 
Not even that. Jesus told us this. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. And Jesus spells out that even those who come in sheep's clothing are actually ravenous wolves. That we should not be surprised if there's conflict within the church. Now, obviously, there's different types of conflict. But true conflict that needs to be dealt with, to what extent is sin within our midst, is one thing that Paul brings out all the time. That little bit of leaven that leavens the whole lump. Are we willing to be able to deal and talk about that? Now often, what actually happens is that conflict in the church is not resolved around truth. See what Paul says before, that they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. My experience, conflict in the church has been about small things that are inappropriately dealt with. People not dealing as Matthew 18 instructs to go and talk to your brother about it. And people end up just saying, well, I'm just leaving the church. Not actually dealing with the conflict in an appropriate manner. But that doesn't mean that all conflict is like that. That in the Old Testament, we don't necessarily see a one-to-one correlation between everything. Especially when it comes to things that are foreign to us, like war and battle. But there are times in our setting where we need to understand that even from within the church there might be a reason for us to be able to stand up and fight. Not for land, not for a crown, but for truth. Now as David is going to war, civil war, and I think one of the greatest problems is that he's thinking not as a king, but as a father dealing with a son, and not as a king dealing with someone who is uh, committing treason, And different things like this. So as they're leaving, King David orders Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the the son, the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. And in this lays the interesting part of this whole piece of the puzzle that we find in, in all of this in chapter 18 and even into chapter 19. That why are they going to war? They're going to war because of what Absalom has done. Chapter 15, the reason why they flee. David even points this out in chapter 15 when he talks about um, him coming. The men of Israel have gone after, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. And he says, Arise, let us escape, let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. The reason they're running is because of Absalom. Absalom is the one who has who started this, who is pursuing this, who is willing to be able to wipe his father out. This is Absalom that has driven the whole story, even long before this, about getting what he wants, going out, riding in with his 50 men before his chariots. Now we need to be sympathetic towards David. 
I pray that I would never be in a situation like this, where I'd have to call the police on my child, or even as a pastor, have to excommunicate them from the church. However, in those situations, I pray that I, I, I would not let my blood relationship to them affect what might be the right thing to do. One commentator puts it this way. It was the king who spoke, but his words were a father's words. Absalom was a traitor and a killer who deserved to die. That would be justice, but he was a son whom his father loved. Love demanded gentleness, not because Absalom deserved gentleness, but for the sake of the father who loved him, who always saw him as the young man Absalom. And here King David speaks, but... As the commentator points out, it's not King David, it's Father David, Dad. Now, I'm not necessarily sure what David's tactic is at this point in chapter 18. Whether he's thinking that deal gently with him so I might be able to talk with him. Maybe I might be able to put him in prison to be able to make sure no one else get hurt. We don't know what David's plan was. We're only told what he said. But looking back on this, Joab hits the nail on the head when he explains the the problem with King David's thinking. In chapter 19, after David finds out Absalom is dead, Joab goes and he speaks to the king and he says, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants, who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines. Because you love those who hate you, and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive, and all of us were dead today, then you would not be pleased. So here, right before, David is is saying, you know, you go out, thousands of people. Going out. Why are they going out to be able to fight Absalom and what he is trying to accomplish? But Joab points and says, You see us as worthless. You don't see us as valuable at all. If you're worth ten thousand to if we're worth ten thousand of one of you, Absalom is worth far more. You would rather us all die than Absalom die. That you love those who hate you. And in turn, what he's saying is then you hate those who love you, who are willing to die for you. In the end, it's, it's those who seek to be able to hurt him. So he orders him, Abishai, Uh, Joab and Ittai deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom and all the people heard when the king gave orders to the commanders about Absalom so the army went out into the field against Israel and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim and the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David and the loss there was great on that day 20,000 men the battle spread over the face of all the country And the forest devoured more people than the sword. Again, uh, we have no account of how this battle played out. The Bible often just quickly just passes over things like this. 
It was some, an epic battle by the sounds of it. 20,000 men, as the, um, the author at this point says, great loss was happened on that day. And again, you think about that 20,000 number compared to this one man's sin and pride that drives this whole thing. Absalom wants to be king. And he wants to be king now. This is why this is all happening. But notice also that the forest devoured more people. The forest of Ephraim was given to Ephraim and Manasseh in uh, Joshua chapter 17. But just an interesting thing to think about that here in this battle, out of 20,000 people, more people died because of uh, fighting in this forest that should have been cleared, but um, obviously was not. Um, but I, I also want you to think about Go back to two different verses before we look at this next section. And that is uh, way back in 1 Samuel chapter 26. This is a chapter after he meets Abigail, and Abigail and Nabal, and David is going to go strike down Nabal. And Abigail comes and speaks wisdom uh, to David and says, "My, My husband is a fool. He is correctly named. He is Nabal. He is a fool. But don't let you, don't you do something foolish because of him. Don't let blood be on your hands because of something he did to you. And then after this time in chapter 26, David is then standing over Saul. And David explains what his outlook is as Saul lives. He he says, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him. Or his day will come to die. Or he will go down into battle and perish. He said, out of these three situations, there's three ways that Saul is going to die. The Lord will strike him. Or his day will come to die. He will die of old age. Or he will go into battle and die. And he basically says that here's the three ways that Saul, my enemy, is going to be defeated. The Lord will strike him. Uh, His day will come to die, or he will go down to battle and perish. And this has been his basic outlook at life from that point on. How does he deal with Isbosheth? How does he deal with Abner? But the second verse that we need to be reminded of is that of all of this that came back to the council of Ahithophel, an archite, uh, Hushai the archite. As we've centered around this verse, that the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel, so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. That we understand what's going to happen to Absalom because of this ethereal, uh, author's comment here in verse 14. So as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, his day will come to die, or he will die and perish in battle. We know what's going to happen. Now, out of all the 20,000 people that died, we don't get any information about those men that fell in battle in the forest of Ephraim. But we do find out about the death of Absalom. That's what it's been centered around. We see this in verses 9 to 15. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak. 
and his head caught fast in the oak. He was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it, and he told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. He said to the man who told him, What, you saw him? Why did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Even if it fell in my hand, the weight of a thousand, even if it felt in my hand, the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in the hearing of the king's command, you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there was nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I will not waste my time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten men, young men, Absalom's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Right here is the story of what happened, the fall of Absalom. He's riding along, he gets caught in these thick branches of this great oak. Um, we don't have any idea of what happened here, how this happened. Some people have thought that it's his long hair that has caught, and he's caught hanging from his hair. We don't have any idea of this. Uh, it says that his head was caught fast in the oak, um, and here he is hanging. And this young man sees him, he tells Joab, and Joab says, well, why didn't you do anything about this? And it shows to the extent of how David commanded his uh, commanders Deal gently, or as he says, protect, uh, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. And he understands that if I strike him, it's what you'd call a lose-lose situation. If I struck him down, the king would hear about it, and I'd get punished. But if I, um, he wouldn't do it, even if, he had the opportunity for a thousand pieces of silver. Now, it's hard for us to be able to wrap our heads around this. I think it's just a foreign concept for us to be able to understand. Uh, these men are men of war and battle. Joab is, is a man, I think, that he's, he's hard to be able to um, place. He, he, he often does things, I would say, for the king's interest, even if it's what the king does not want. He often does things for the king's interest, even if it's not what the king wants. You might say that Joab is the one who gets his hands dirty, where David does not. And David takes things into his own, uh, Joab takes things into his own hands. And he says, well, if you're not going to do it, I am. Three javelins into his heart, and then these ten young men, uh, attack and kill him. Again, it's hard for us to be able to wrap our heads around this. You read this as a parent, and what a difficult thing that is for us to read. You read it as uh, a military leader, maybe it becomes a little bit more clear. But ultimately, this has been one long story about the rise and a fall of a young man with a dream to be able to be king. 
the, the war immediately ends right at this point. As Ahithophel says, just give me 12,000 men and I will king, kill King David and you'll get the crown off his head. And Joab almost does the exact reverse and says, just king at, kill Absalom. That's all that we need. And this war will be ended. And that's what we see in verses 16 to 18. Then Joab blew the trumpet, and the troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, every one to his own home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself a pillar that is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name. And it's called Absalom's Monument to this day. The truth of the story is that William Shakespeare would love a story like this. You ever notice that William Shakespeare's stories never generally end with the happily ever after? They often begin with the tragedy of Macbeth or tragedy of Romeo and Juliet. You would say this really is the tragedy of Absalom, the fall of Absalom. We'd seen the rise and the fall of Saul, who died in battle. But I think there's even more similarities that were given between that of Absalom and that of Saul. The, the, firstly, they first and looked the part. Now in all Israel, there was no one as such to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish on him. And that's what we find out about Saul. That here you have Kish, who's a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. And there was not a young man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. For his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. That both of them are known for their appearance. They look, you might say, as kings. Kings that like the other nations. Not only they, they did that, but they also made monuments for themselves, as we just read. Absalom, in his lifetime, had taken up for himself and built a pillar in the king's valley, for he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. So he sets up a pillar. Now, we noted back in uh, chapter 14 that there were born to uh, Absalom three sons, one daughter whose name was Tamar, and she was a beautiful woman. Now, where's the disagreement there then between verse 18 where he says, I have no son to keep my name. Now, I think the, the greatest example there is that he has no son to keep his name. It doesn't say that he had no sons, that he never had any children. What it says is that he had no son to be able to keep his name. So what is generally assumed in chapter 14, none of the sons get a name. And that generally means that they die in birth or die close before, before they get circumcised and named on the eighth day. So he did have three sons. They did not make it past uh, their circumcision. Thus, he has no name to be able to, or maybe they even died as young boys. But they have no way to be able to carry on his name. But just as Absalom built a monument, so did Saul in chapter 15. When Samuel comes to meet Saul, 
And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel. And behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went to Gil- down to Gilgal. So here you have both of them who are appearance-driven, but also as they think about their legacy, their legacy is they want to be known and remembered. That's what Absalom set up his pillar for, that I might be able to be remembered. The sad thing is that the sad part of this, he is remembered. We've got the, the account given to us in Second Samuel of this dismal fall of Absalom who wants to be able to obtain this dream and passion. Now, out of Saul, David, and Absalom, they all have their sins. But Saul and Absalom don't think they need God. And especially, they don't seek to be able to turn and ask for his forgiveness. Saul was driven by jealousy of David, which drove him in his latter years, in his early years. Why the kingdom was ripped out of his hand was he did not obey what God had told him through Samuel. David has his flaws, as we've seen, driven by his lust. Absalom has his pride. He wanted to be remembered, known, bowed down to. In every way, I think he got exactly what he wanted, the fame, to be known. Now, in all of this, I think you see the tragedy of what sin actually does. That sin has a payment. That payment is death through justice. And we must learn from the tragedy of Absalom. The effects of what sin actually does in our hearts and what it drives us to do. For Saul, it was that little sin of envy and jealousy which grew. And he was willing to take David's life to be able to try and feed that monster. For Absalom, it was to be known, to be remembered. And he was willing to kill his own father that he might be able to be known and remembered. That this sinful heart with his, which is in them always leads to death. As a warning for us to be able to know what sin can do in our lives. We might not want to be able to kill our father or mother or people around us, but we're willing to take steps that we might not ever think we were before. But in this warning, there's also a great story, and that of triumph at the end. This great truth about God's kingdom and God's appointed king. Right back in chapter 5, we're told that David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people. That David was here not because he forced his hand under Saul or made his way to the top. He was here because right back in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, as Samuel comes, it's not Eliab. Do not look at the outward appearance. Look at the That's what man looks at. Look at the heart. That here, 
David, the anointed king, is not overthrown. The, the glorious truth in all of this is that even a sinful man, driven by such a greedy aspiration to be able to take another's life, to be able to sit and have a, have, be king, cannot remove God's appointed king. Then in all of this, God is sovereign throughout all of it, as, as we look at in that verse 14 in chapter 17. That, that we know that conflict prevails. Conflict is there. Conflict is a part of that promise in Genesis 3.15 that enmity is going to be between the seed of the serpent and the seed of promise. But we know how it ends because we know that at the end of the conflict, there's a winner. The winner is the seed of promise. The winner is the one who crushes the head of the serpent. Whereas Jesus tells Peter, that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But there's another story, which we don't get it until Acts chapter 8. It's not even that God can defeat the enemies that rise up against his people and his anointed king. But it's also a story that God can change the heart of the one who is risen up and attacking God's people. You see this in Saul. When we first meet Saul, he's, he's standing there with coats before his feet and he's approving the execution of uh, Stephen. This great persecution that arises in the church in Jerusalem. They're scattered throughout all the regions, Judea, Samaria, to accept the apostles. Stephen is buried, but Saul was ravaging the church. He entered house after house, dragging men off, women, and committing them to prison. That here you see a sinful man driven by sinful desires seeking to be able to go and persecute Christ. As he meets him on the road to Damascus, Jesus tells him and says, Why do you persecute me? Not why do you persecute my church, why do you persecute me? That there is someone who comes to be able to try and take the king away, but what happens to him? God doesn't destroy him, he turns him and uses him to be able to build his kingdom. Let it be a warning for us about the sin within our hearts. Let it be a glorious truth that God's kingdom will prevail, but also let it be a a story which reminds us that conflict prevails, but God can still use those situations and circumstances to build it and change it, whatever way He sees fit. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook. Or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.